Dear Heavenly Father, we're so thankful tonight, Lord, that um, we have the freedom in this country to open Your Word and speak forth Your Word. Lord, tonight that we don't have to be afraid of um, what people might do to us. Um, persecution, physical death even. But God, we have the freedom to worship our God. And I pray, Lord, that we would take that freedom and that liberty seriously. That it would not create in us laziness and apathy. God, that seeing a big building and lots of people lifting their hands and praising God wouldn't produce in us a spirit of laziness. But God, we would have a mission burning in our heart for lost people. That we would recognize that the reason God saved us, part of the reason that God saved us, excuse me, is so that we can spread the excellent news of God's saving grace to those um, that you are preparing by your Holy Spirit. God, I pray, Lord, that we would um, take that responsibility seriously. That that wouldn't be the job of the pastor or the elder or the deacon, but God, that would be the, the job of the church, the body of Christ, that we see our existence to spread, the purpose of it is to spread the gospel of the saving news of Jesus Christ. So God, I pray, Lord, if we're lost, if we're getting lazy, apathetic, depressed, I pray, Lord, that you would remind us why you saved us and why you put us here. It's not to be married. It's not to have a job. It's not to have a big house. It's not to be recognized or be powerful. It's to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, I pray, Lord, that um, we would always be reminded of our mission here on earth. And I pray, Lord, that tonight you would use us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Bless us now as we hear from it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I trust that you're in Jeremiah chapters 23, verses 21 and 22. Um, I just want to encourage you all, please bring your Bibles. Um, I'm not going to lie to you that, that I'm not flawless. There have been some times where I've forgotten, but that, that I hope has always been incidental in my life where um, I've always purposed to bring it. Um, bring a notebook, too. Sometimes you, you might want to jot something down and look it up later. It's important to, to do those kinds of things um, just so we can be good students of God's Word. Amen? All right, good. <clears throat> How many people have ever heard of Robert Murray McShane? Robert Murray McShane. Anybody at all? Cricket, cricket, cricket. Well, he's not the most popular dude in uh, the basket, you know, so... He, I don't fault you for that, but Robbie, Robert Murray McShane um, died on March 25th, 1843, at the age of 29. Young man. Died as a young man, I believe, of typhoid. <clears throat> he served God's church for seven and a half years. Before he went into the ministry as a very young man, he got an education, a seminary education. And in seven and a half years, this is what it said about Mr. McShane, that he stamped an indelible impress on all of Scotland. 29 years old, 75, seven and a half years behind the pulpit, changed a country. Changed a country. He was a preacher, a pastor, a poet, a man of deep piety and prayer who never got married. He was a single man, by the way. And in seven and a half short years, his life changed the country. Changed the whole country. How did one life, this is the question that kind of popped into my head, and I, I hope a question that's popping into your head right now. How did one life make such a big difference? How did one life change, alter the direction of a whole country? How is it that one person can be so impactful in the communities in which they live? Because as the church, that's our desire, I think, for those of us who are walking with God. I don't think that you all are here just to 
to look at a preacher and listen. And, you know, I think some people come to church for that reason. It's kind of a habit. You've done it since you were a kid. But I think once your eyes are opened to the glorious gospel of Christ, you're infused with this mission, and you want to see people come to Christ. You want to see people and culture turn to the living God and be saved from their sins. I mean, amen? Isn't that why we're here? I mean, we want to live impactful lives. We want to live lives that change other people's lives, for God to use us and spread this kind of revival type of atmosphere in the, in the world that we live in, in our jobs, in our families, in the workplace. Here's a man that did it. Here's a man that God used. 200 years removed, we ask ourselves this question, how did he do it, and how can we do it? What must we do to impact the families that we have, the friends that we have, the coworkers that we have, the country that we live in? What is the, What sort of man, here's the question, what sort of man does God use? What sort of man does God use? And that's what I want you to consider with me tonight. And Robert McShane said two things about this. And these are very profound. And if we can kind of hear his words echoing from the grave and hear them and listen to them, we're going to see how they apply to our text as well. He said, first, it is not great talent that God blesses so much as great likeness to Christ. It is not so much great talent that God blesses, but great likeness to Christ. So to be in Christ before being in ministry. Now please hear this. These are important words. To be in Christ before being in ministry is a thing indispensable. It seems kind of obvious, kind of straightforward. But how often do we forget that basic principle that being close to our Savior is what gives us a sweet, savoring aroma to the world that we live that, that, we, that we live in. Oftentimes we trade that for cheap gimmicks. You know, dim the lights, paint the walls black, have a cool rock worship band, and then we'll get butts in the seats, right? And you know what? Places do, I'm pleased I'm not faulting people for, for doing those things. But if we trade the power of the Holy Spirit in imitation of Christ for gimmicks, so we're not growing the church. We're just growing the crowd, right? We're growing the crowd. And we, we want to uh, steer from that. His biographer said, Robert Machine's biographer said this, he would not have expected to be blessed with the salvation of souls unless he had himself been a monument of God's grace. He would not have expected to be blessed with the salvation of souls unless he had himself been a monument of God's grace. With this in mind, please, Join with me in the reading of our text, if you could turn, if you're not already there, to Jeremiah 23, verses 21 and 22. It says in God's Word, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. This is one of, by the way, one of um, Robert McShane's prized passages in all of Scripture. What is it that makes a man God's man and useful to service? And in this verse, we can see a handful of things that I hope that tonight we can all learn from and ask ourselves the question, is this the way in which I'm living my life? So the man God uses, what is it, who is the man God uses? When I say man, please understand I mean general. I mean mankind, humankind. 
I don't mean that just men, like dudes. I mean men and women, okay? <clears throat> Let me give you a little bit of context for the book of Jeremiah, because if we're going to understand this verse, we have, to earn, we have to understand the context of which Jeremiah preached and what was happening in the world that he lived in. He was a prophet in the Old Testament. Some of you probably know that. It's pretty basic. But the Old Testament prophet was a messenger from God sent to correct sin should it creep into the lifestyle of God's chosen people, Israel. Okay? So the prophet was supposed to be a herald to the people of Israel, God's people, if they began to veer off course from their purpose and what God expected from their service to him. The chief sin that the prophet was to rebuke was idolatry. That is the worship of false gods. And we see this in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5 through 3, verse 5. Uh, And closely following and associated with idolatry was all sorts of immorality. Sexual promiscuity, divorce, homosexuality, lying, disrespect to parents. All sorts of things were associated with this idolatry. Once idolatry creeps into the into the life of Israel, what would happen in the life of Israel was their behavior would begin to change, okay? Um, and they would begin to break what the, the Ten Commandments, the law of God. So closely following um, idolatry was, were these immoral acts as a, like, uh, such as idolatry, injustice, fornication, etc. And we see this happening in Israel in Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 20-31. The prophet would remind the nation of God's impending judgment should they not repent. The the prophet had one job to speak the words that God had spoken. To speak the words that God had spoken, okay? And that they should repent from the sins that they committed. The prophet's message was return to the Lord, Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, and change your ways. Change your ways. Chapter 7, verses 3 through 7. If they repented, if the people repented, they would be spared of this judgment that was impending because of their infraction. Make sense, make sense so far? Are you with me? Okay. <clears throat> the history of Israel, if you read the Old Testament, if you read the prophets, and you read the historical books like Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, you'll notice that the history of Israel is so fluctuating. It's this up and down um, it's characterized by either rebellion or revival. There's this rebellion. A prophet comes in. He warns them of impending judgment. Some of them repent and they come back. And there's this up and down cycle all throughout the life cycle of Israel. And what happened was, to make a long story short, um, at, at some point in the life of Israel, um, they separated. They had a civil war and they separated um, from the north and from the south. When King Solomon died, the kingdom split into two kingdoms. The, king of the, nor- the, the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. After this, this happened in Old Testament history, in, in Israelite history, the Old Testament, is, excuse me, the northern kingdom is referred to as Israel, right? And the southern kingdom is referred to as what? Judah. That's right. So when you read Israel in, in the Bible, you have to ask, at what point are we in the history of Israel? Because if it's before a certain point, it means all of Israel. If it's really far back, it might be referring to Jacob. You know, so that's why context is important. You have to understand the context of what you're reading. But anyway, so it splits into two, the north and to the south. The north fell to the Assyrians, I believe, in 722 B.C. Um, because of their, again, because of their idolatry and their turning from God. The south made it a little bit longer, okay? 
They had a little bit um, more time. They had more faithful kings in the life cycle. Um, one in particular was Josiah, who smashed every idol that previous kings had set up. Okay? So we see in the, the southern kingdom um, more good kings in the south that worshipped God only. So they lasted a little bit longer. But they, they fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. because of idolatry. Okay? And that's when we see Daniel coming onto the scene and, and um, Israel going into exile, if you recall. So Daniel and Ezekiel and all these prophets were going to, into exile. Jeremiah is on the cusp of all this. Jeremiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom, probably about the same age as King Josiah, and he enters into the scene where God has had enough. Where they've received too many warnings, and too many times have they gone through this repenting and turning and repenting and turning, and God has said enough. And Jeremiah's task was to enter into this tumultuous situation and tell the people that God's judgment, that God's doom was impending on their lives. How do you like that job? <laughs> we, have the luxury, we, we have the awesome privilege of preaching the gospel message, which is salvation to the repentant sinner. That there's hope. But Jeremiah didn't preach a message of hope. He preached a message of doom. The Bible actually says in Jeremiah, he says, don't, God tells Jeremiah, don't even pray for the people because I won't hear your prayer. I am going to judge them. Now, there is a hope in Jeremiah chapter 31 that even though they will go through this judgment, God will regather Israel and again bless them, okay? But in the immediate context, God is telling Jeremiah, send this message to Israel. I have had enough. I am sending my judgment on you. Jeremiah was God's man. A lot of people call Jeremiah the prophet of doom. Have you ever heard this? Because this was, this was um, Jeremiah's message to Israel. His message simply was that Judah would fall to the Babylonians, that God's grace had been frustrated and his judgment was coming. Okay, his judgment was coming. Now what's worse, now imagine the difficulty of, in having to be this guy that has this message for people. What's worse is he was opposed. All throughout Jeremiah you see um, records of false prophets opposing Jeremiah, coming alongside and saying, hey, look, this guy's a nut. We're going to be just fine. Right? We're going to be okay. It was a message of peace and prosperity when God had spoken a message of judgment. So, Jeremiah not only had to face this difficult situation, he, had, he also had to be, have the opposition of false prophets. And these guys were, were claiming in chapter 14, verses 11 through 16, to be the mouthpiece of Yahweh. They were saying, thus saith the Lord, you guys are going to be fine. And Jeremiah was saying, thus saith the Lord, watch out, his judgment's coming. So, now we stand back as the people of Israel. We have this, judge, this so-called prophet and this so-called prophet. Which one's right? Who do we listen to? Okay? They claimed to be the mouthpiece of Yahweh. Second, they preached a message of peace and prosperity, as I said, and that's in chapter 28. And third, not only did they preach a message of peace and prosperity when they should have been preaching against the evils of the day, but they themselves were living in the evils of the day. Isn't it surprising that they were saying God's judgment isn't coming for that stuff? We're going to be fine. Why would anyone say that? Well, because they were doing it. Everyone likes to have the delusion in their own mind that what they do isn't so bad. 
What, this is fine. God's, we're all okay. God's not going to judge us. There is no hell. We're all going to go to heaven when we die. You know, we all might be a little off in what we believe, but we're all kind of going to the same place. Because you're really not that bad a person. So this is the same message that the false prophets in Jeremiah's day were preaching. And we can see this in chapter 23. And this is a tumultuous context that Jeremiah was called to serve in. <clears throat> a coming destruction. Idolatry, immorality, and false teachers contradicting every word that he said. But Jeremiah was a man God used. Jeremiah was a man God used. I want to be a man that God uses. I want to know what marked Jeremiah as a man that God used. I want to know what marks men like Robert McShane as a man that God uses. Because I don't want to live my life and walk through my life just kind of skipping around and clicking my heels and just going from one fun activity to the next. I want to be a man that God uses and I want to know what the secret is. And I want to put myself in humility under God's will for my life. I want Him to break my flesh and reveal to me the things that are preventing me from being effective in the lives of my family and my friends and my neighbors. You see, I want to know the secret. Amen? I want to be a man that God uses. So what marks a person useful for God's service? And this is what we're going to look at. There are six things that I can observe. Um, of course, please understand that there are more. That was our text. Sorry about that. The first thing, the man that God uses has encountered the grace of God, number one. The man that God uses has encountered the grace of God. Isaiah, excuse me, <clears throat> like Isaiah, Jeremiah was a man of unclean lips. He was a sinner. He was a sinner in need of a Savior. Savior. Jeremiah was part of the problem at one point. Like Isaiah, he was part of the problem. Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is removed. You see, if we're going to be effective people, Isaiah was about to be commissioned for the work of the service to God, his maker. And if we're going to be effective church, we have to be touched with the coal from the fire of God's forgiveness. We have to be cleansed of our past. We are sinners. We were part of the problem. We were part of the culture. We were part of the people serving and worshiping idols and skipping along each day, doing things as we please, doing things as we saw right in our own eyes. Jeremiah knew it. Isaiah knew it. And they knew that if they were going to make a difference in the world that they lived in, they had to be saved from their sins. They needed a Savior. <clears throat> so too, in Jeremiah we see in chapter 1, verse 9, the, the Lord put out His hand and touches His mouth. Because we can't go forward in, our current, in the current condition of unbelief and death and sin. Otherwise, 
we preach a message that is heresy. We preach a false gospel and we join the ranks of false prophets. You see, we need to enter into what is the grace of God. We need to see ourselves as sinners and lost in need of forgiveness. And the only way that we can find that forgiveness is in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ. You see, we need to be great men. We need to be men of grace, men who understand grace, men who understand that that sin has offended a holy God and the only means by which we can be, be forgiven is the perfect grace that God offers in Jesus Christ. Okay? So if we are going to be God's men and God's people and effective for service, we need to encounter the grace of God. It says that I consecrate, God says of Jeremiah in chapter 1, I consecrated you and appointed you before you were even born. This is imagery here speaking of Jeremiah's salvation. That God is being set, God has set apart Jeremiah to open his eyes to the gospel and to see the light of the glory that is the grace in Christ. And Jeremiah was consecrated for this. He was engulfed and entrenched in the grace of God. He knew he was a sinner, but he knew he was forgiven because of what God had done for him. So if we're going to encounter a lost world and be, and be helpful and help people in the lost world, and if we're going to see radical change in the people that we encounter in this lost world, we first need to encounter the grace of God. Okay, so that's number one. Number two. <clears throat> we are equipped for service when we are sent by God with His power and presence and equipped with His Word. Okay? We are effective in ministry. We, be, we become people that God can use. We are people that God can use when, he, when we are sent with His power and presence and equipped with His Word. Let me explain to you a little bit what I mean, because that kind of sounds a little esoteric and kind of like in the sky. And what, what do you really mean by that? Let me explain to you what I mean by that, okay? God says plainly in our text, if you recall, Jeremiah 23, I did not send these false prophets. The implication is that a true prophet is sent by God. Okay? So for us to be effective in the world that we live in, we must be sent by God with this message. Okay? So how is it that we're sent by God? He did send, let's look at Jeremiah as an example. He did send Jeremiah. That's what made um, Jeremiah God's man and effective in ministry. Okay, so this was to be Jeremiah's confidence when he went. He wasn't to be looking internally. He wasn't to be looking at his own ideas about life and what, what, you know, what might be helpful to people. Hey, you know what I think, I think would really help you guys is, you know, like if everyone started eating right and thinking positively and, you know, like you can do, you can do it mentality. And like we, we hear like these kind of rah-rah sessions that try to kind of like boost people's spirits and, you know, all these types of things. So we come with our own message to try to change the world that we live in. Um, today, I think, is the, uh, what is it, the um, 30th anniversary of um, um, John F. Kennedy's uh, famous speech, is it today? Is it the 30th? Yeah. And, and how many people have heard that speech? And this is not nothing to say against John F. Kennedy. What a, what a powerful speech that he made. Um, and what a wonderful um, ideal to have in, in a country and running a country. But there is only one name by which man can be saved, and it's the name Jesus Christ. 
and as good as, and helpful as our ideas can be in society and the world that we live in, there is an impending doom on people's lives because of sin, and the only word that we have for them that can save them is the name Jesus Christ. You see, so we speak this word, and we go out with this message, and that's what equips us to be effective in the world that we live in. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, so what I mean here is that our confidence is built not in our own ideas or, or in our own abilities, but it's built in that God is sending us with a message that is powerful. Okay? And we have to be convinced of that in our going. In chapter 1, Jeremiah hesitates. Did you know this? God says, like Moses, he says, hey, I want you to go tell Jeremiah, I want you to go tell Israel that I'm about to judge them. No one's going to listen to you. Okay? You're going to be hated and hunted. Um, but there you go. And believe it or not, big surprise, he was like, ah, am I the right guy for this? I don't think I can do this, right? Maybe there's someone else that is a little smarter than I am or taller, you know, like, um, why don't you, you know, find, find someone else who's, who's older. Actually, the excuse he made was, I'm too young. No one's going to listen to me. I'm too young. And he began to make excuses. He hesitates because he thought he was inadequate. I want you to hear something, okay? And please listen to me because this is important. Personal inadequacy is always the biggest deterrent in making bold and faith decisions. When you are presented with going left or right, and you know that this is the hard way, the difficult way, the risky way, the first excuse that's going to hit our lips is, I can't do it. I'm not equipped for this. I don't have the equipment. Get someone who's more gifted, more talented, someone who can do this kind of friend, God. And we begin to come up with these um, excuses over our personal inadequacy. Now, please remember Mr. McShane's motto. It is not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Christ. It is great likeness to Christ that makes us effective in the world that we live in. God told Jeremiah, I will be with you, and you are going with my message, so please... Don't question my power. I can use a snail. I can use a rock. I can use this glass of ice water. Because I am God Almighty, and it's not your message, it's my message. It's my message that's powerful. It's my message that I send you with. And it's that message that we are to equip ourselves with that will equip us to be God's people and effective for God's work. Amen? Okay. So the person that God uses is the person who is in the presence of God. He is the person who speaks what God has spoken. God has not spoken to these false prophets. God had spoken to Jeremiah, yet they spoke in his name. It was not their message they, that they spoke. Excuse me, it was not God's message that they spoke. It was their own. The man God uses is like Jeremiah. They stand in God's counsel is what our text tells us. If they stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people. But they did not stand in God's counsel because they were rebellious of His word and saw other counsel. And because of that, they were speaking not the true gospel, but a false one. 
So Jeremiah chapter 1 records Jeremiah standing in God's counsel and hearing from God. And like Jeremiah, when we open God's word and submit ourselves to his word, we stand in his counsel and we proclaim the words of God. And like it says in Jeremiah um, 23, they would proclaim my words to my people and my people will repent. So the message that we carry is not our own opinion, it's not our own idea, but it's the message of God's saving grace. Okay? So number two, know your message and know God's presence. Okay? Number three, <clears throat> the person that is equipped to service, the man that God uses in this world that we live in, live in is a man who has a progressively purified life. Number three, they have a pro- progressively purified life. The lives of the false prophets, as I said, alluded to a little bit earlier, were corrupted by the very sin that they were supposed to be correcting. Listen to what it says in Jeremiah 23:14. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, that's the false prophets, okay? In the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no, so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. And what's interesting here is that they they strengthen the hand of the evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. Why would they not want people turning from evil? Just think with me. It seems to me that you don't want people turning from evil if that's the thing that you enjoy participating in, right? It seems to me that you might become tempted to start saying things like, this isn't really wrong. Has God really said? Has God really said you shall not die? You begin to question God's word and preach a different message. God's man is the man who has not only encountered the grace of God because of his sin, but is set apart from it. His eyes have opened. He begins to hate sin and and loathe the life that he used to live in passionate pursuit of Christ to encounter God's love and to follow God faithfully. Not so that he can boast of his morality, but because he loves his maker so much that he seeks to imitate his maker. And this is the person that God uses. He knows what sin is and doesn't let the culture define his moral code for him. Okay? The false prophet not only... Um, did not speak God's message against the evils of his day, but lived in them. And this is really like a lot of what we see today, isn't it? I want to um, read from you a, a little portion uh, of a sermon by Dr. Uh, Ravi Zacharias. Listen to what he says. The problem with 20, 20th century man is that he no longer knows what to laugh at, and he no longer knows what to weep at. So you turn on your television and you're looking at a seduction and instead of weeping at it, you're watching an intrigue. And because Hollywood has convinced us that it's entertainment, we become entertained rather than crushed and broken. I often wonder if my Lord was able to stop some of the seats of Broadway or sit in some of the theaters where jokes are made of his virgin birth, where Christianity is demeaned and mocked where illegitimacies are glorified and exalted, that which is vulgar is intended to make us laugh, that which is is sacred is intended to make us weep, rather than sit in awe and gratitude for the sacred. He says we have lost the differentiation between laughter and tears. 
We don't know what to cry about, and we don't know what to laugh about, because wrong is right and right is wrong. So the, so the wrong makes us laugh, and it entertains us. And the right makes us weep, because isn't it a shame that those people think that they can't have sex until they're married? That's so oppressive, isn't it? And isn't it a shame that they believe in this weirdo virgin birth? And it makes them weep. What should make them stand back and look in awe at the majesty of God and the liberty that's found in submission and obedience to them. And the wicked, evil things of this world make us laugh. And we don't know what to laugh at anymore. We don't know what to cry at anymore. A generation laughs at sin and cries at piety. Right has become wrong. And wrong not only has become right, but popular. And I want you to understand what I mean by this. Because there was a day where there were people that believed wrong things were okay. But it wasn't popular. But we live in a culture today where most people think that it's wrong things are right. But the prophet, the, the man that God uses, is unafraid of the culture that they live in to say, no, God's word says this. No, God's word is true. God's man will stand for his truth. No matter how oppressed he might become, no matter how hated he might become. And please, please understand me. I'm not suggesting that we wield our Bibles and we say, you're wrong and be rude jerks. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. Okay? But I am suggesting that we let our speech issue forth from what God has said, not what we would like to be true. Because, it, you know, it, it's a little bit more peaceful in conversation if awkward topics should come up. Okay? We have to be people who are motivated to be heralds of what God has said, not what we would like to be true. We need to be men of uncompromised, people of uncompromising purity. This is what Jeremiah was. And God used him. Fourthly, <clears throat> the man that God uses seeks obedience to God's message rather than comfort or approval. Rather than the comfort of approval. Very interesting, isn't it? There are three kinds of prophets that we see in Scripture. Okay? There's the first kind of prophet, excuse me, three kinds of false prophets that we see in Scripture. The first kind of false prophet is um, the man who prophesies in the name of a false god, like the prophets of Baal, right, when Elisha smoked them all. So these are obvious, right? We kind of know, like, okay, yeah, these guys prophets of Baal. That's, those, those are kind of easy to pick out in a crowd, right? Um, so these are the first kind of prophets that we see in Scripture. The second kind of prophet that we see in Scripture is a, is a man who ceased to be a true prophet. He was a true prophet because he was given a message from God, but because of personal wickedness, and rebellion, like um, Balaam, for example, um, he became a false prophet. So God had spoken to Balaam with a message, and Balaam became wicked. And um, as we know that story as it goes. Finally, we see in Jeremiah, men who, the third kind of false prophet that we see, are, are like in Jeremiah, men who falsely claim, men who have falsely claimed to receive a message from the Lord. So they're, they're claiming to come in the name of the Lord, in the name of Yahweh, but they're actually just making stuff up. <laughs> God hasn't spoken to them at all. Okay? 
These men in the Old Testament sought personal promotion by pretending to be prophets. By pretending to be people that God has spoken to. And evil kings would seek these guys out to get the pious people on their side. So they would work out a deal with a liar, pretty much, and that lie would pretty much tell the people, hey, the Lord has spoken to me. Do what this king wants. Okay? And the, and the pious people of the land would say, okay, cool, that's, that's a quote-unquote prophet, so let's follow the king. And these were false prophets. They were motivated by selfishness. And they were motivated by pride. They wanted attention. They wanted the comforts of the world. That the king could afford them if he said the right thing. They were ear ticklers because they wanted the benefit of, the, of having the approval of a person in power. Have you ever known a person like that? Have you ever been a person like that? You kind of said the right thing, you know, what people want to hear, just so you can be on their good side because there's something from them that you want. Right? This is what the false prophets were doing. They were claiming to speak in the name of God, but God had not spoken to them. They had evil and selfish motives. They would say what the wicked kings would desire to hear. We see this, by the way. Um, wicked king Ahab called on false prophets in 1 Kings 22 to say, Hey, this would be all right. And there was this other prophet that was always, was always preaching doom against Ahab, and he was sick of him, so he never called on him to prophesy anymore. Right? But again, long story short, anyway, that's, that's not really the point. My point is, we see this in Scripture where false prophets are being called on because there's some kind of advantage that they, that, that they have for their false prophecy. They seek the approval of men. Winston Churchill once was asked, doesn't it thrill you to know that every time you make a speech, the hall is packed to overflowing? It's quite flattering, replied Sir Winston, but whenever I feel that way, I always remember that if instead of making a political speech I was being hanged, the crowd would be twice as big. You see, there is a humility that characterizes a true prophet. The man that God uses doesn't seek the approval of men, but seeks the audience of one. They seek the audience of one. Number five, they were men of great courage and sacrifice. Jeremiah's message stood in opposition to every single prophet and king of his day. He was hated, hunted, imprisoned, but he was a man of courage in spite of all this. He did the right thing. God had spoken a message to him, and he would not corrupt that message because it was more important that God approved of him than man. So he was a man of great courage in spite of the persecution he continued. One, one writer warns not to attach our hope to what they call visible symptoms. Let me explain to you what they mean by that. He says that the promises of God, not concrete successes, are the basis of Christian leadership. You hear that? The promises of God and not concrete successes are the basis of Christian leadership. He continues to say, Many ministers have been disillusioned, bitter, and even hostile when years of hard work bear no fruit and when little change is accomplished. They become hostile. But hope prevents us from clinging to what we have and frees us to move away from the safe place and enter unknown and fearful territory. You see, what they're saying in this, this little quote that I gave you is that when we approach God, we're more concerned with His promises rather than with physical outcomes. 
Jeremiah was told by God that not one person would repent and follow him. So what was success for Jeremiah? Was it a full crowd? Was it a full church? And many pastors, I think, fall into this rut and they evaluate if, you know, is every, is every seat filled? Is, that, is, every, is everything, you know, is our church growing? Do we have to add a west wing? And we're so concerned about, um, we're not doing a good job. Well, maybe you're doing a fantastic job. Maybe you've got to rest in the promises of God, preach what He's told you to proclaim in His Word, and let Him decide how big or small your church should be. So we rest in the promises of, uh, the promises of God. We have great courage and great sacrifice because it's more important for us to seek God than man's approval. Okay? The man God uses heads into the unknown, the seemingly unsafe. He is more concerned about God's message than the results, than his, his own results. He doesn't say no to God because he doesn't want to lose his possession. But God's presence is far more valuable than anything that he can gain from this world. Jeremiah accepted the persecution and sacrifice of the life that he had to live because he knew that he possessed God in the process. The other option was to join the false prophets and be separated from his creator. Okay? Booker T. Washington tells the story of one of the students who was uh, low on funds and about to quit school. Washington asked him, are you willing to work all day and study all night? He's challenging this young man to show him the importance of what he's, um, what the decision he's about to make. He asked, are you willing to work all day and study all night? Are you willing to flop hogs in the morning and study Latin at midnight? Will you walk ten miles to borrow a book because you can't afford to buy one? Are you willing to memorize your lessons in class and your homework assignments because you don't have a notebook? Are you willing to be cold in the winter and hot in the summer and go hungry just so you can save the money for tuition by paper and pens? What is, that, what is five years of sacrifice, Washington says, for a lifetime of gain? You see, you're sacrificing something for a little while that will greatly benefit your life. And basically he's saying, isn't that sacrifice worth it? And I'm going to tell you, friends, tonight, a lifetime of sacrifice is worth an eternity of gain. If we lose everything, if we lose our shelter, our homes, our freedom, if we move to, to China and become missionaries and take on the persecution associated from being gospel preachers, isn't a lifetime of sacrifice worth an eternity of gain? Isn't it worth the soul that God loves? You see, why are we here? Why are we in church? Why do we do what we do? You see, unless we come to this place of surrender to God, where we give our lives to Him and service to Him in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, as a reasonable service of worship, to give our whole lives to God. You see, until we come to that place, we're not going to be an effective people. But when we come to that place of surrender, we will be. And finally, number six, and we'll close with this. <clears throat> the man God uses warns of judgment because of great compassion. These people don't have some sick obsession or some distorted fascination with the destruction of people. They don't glory in the fact that people are dying in their sins and going to hell and receiving some weird pleasure from it. 
You see, what we see in Jeremiah 23:22, it says this, if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned, they would have turned them from their evil way and from their evil deeds. They're basically saying, if these prophets would have preached my message, the people of Israel would have life. They wouldn't be going into Babylon under, in slavery. They wouldn't see Jerusalem burn to the ground. You see, we preach the message of judgment because we hope that people will have their eyes enlightened so they won't have to be judged. Because we have great compassion. This is the heart of the man that God uses. Jeremiah didn't preach coming judgment because he had some sick fascination with destruction. He preached it because he desired repentance. And this is exactly what we see in the very heart of our God Almighty. In Ezekiel 18.23, he says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? And wouldn't I rather that they should turn from his way and live? We preach this message not because we're, we're gloating in the fact that we have life and they don't. We preach it because they, we want them to have life. You see, a preacher who has no compassion on the lost shouldn't be preaching. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. This is from 14, verse 17. You shall say to them this word, Let my eyes run down with tears night and day. You see, I've been praying lately for that kind of spirit in my life. Like, how much do I really care for lost people? Jeremiah is saying, let my eyes run with tears night and day. Because he knows destruction's coming. And how many tears has Kyle DeGagney dropped for his lost family and his lost friends and his lost neighbors? How many times have I wept, begging God, interceding that God, um, interceding for my lost friends and family, that God would save them and convict them. You see, this is the heart of the man God uses. It's one that weeps for the lost. The preacher who warns the lost of the judgment of sin should do it with a broken heart and a plea for repentance so that the lost can find life. Let me conclude by saying a couple things here. How does the ministry of one man in seven and a half years, change a country? How do we, Grace Gospel Church, see the gospel spread in our families and friends and communities and the world that we live in in a way that's effective? It's not by, and I quote, great talent that God blesses so much as great likeness to Christ. And it's not by great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Christ. We must submit ourselves and be in the likeness of Christ And if we find ourselves in sin, we need to weep over that sin and turn from that sin because we are disqualifying ourselves from being an effective ministry. We claim the grace of God that's available to us. We don't live in the guilt of past mistakes, but we also don't live in the mistake. We turn from them. And we become a people that God can use. So to be in Christ before being in ministry is a thing indispensable. The people God uses has encountered the grace of God. It's sent by God with power, presence, and message. The people God uses are people that live sanctified lives. That live sanctified lives. They seek God's approval, not man's. They have great courage and sacrifice, and they have great compassion on lost people. What is this, friend, but a description of Christ himself? And that's why I say the people that God will use 
are not people of great talents, but people that are like Christ. Amen? So let's be like Christ, and let's change the world. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Holy Father, thank you so much, Lord, for this night that you've given us. I pray, Lord, that like Jeremiah, that we would be sent with a message, a message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would purify our lips and our lives. God, that, that we would be people of courage, that we would be uncompromising, that we would be pure, that we would not be influenced by what the world and the culture would want us to believe, but we would take the pure message of the living gospel of Christ, undistorted and unpolluted, and proclaim it to a lost and dying world. God, I pray, Lord, that we would be those kinds of people, that you would renew our church, that you would challenge people, including myself, that perhaps have gotten lazy and apathetic and would remember that the, the power of salvation sits in our desks and on our shelves every day and sometimes in the trunks of our cars. Oh God, let us not live for the trinkets of the world that we can earn and buy. Let's not live for football games. Let's not live for NASCAR. Let's not live for any of these things that could distract us from God. Thank you for the, the things that you've given us that we spend time around and having fun and we relax. But God, please, let us not live for those things. Let your gospel be central. Let the gospel of, your, of Jesus Christ be on our lips always. Let's remember the woman at Dunkin' Donuts, the man at Stop and Shop, the neighbor across the street, the aunts and uncles and cousins. God, please help us to remember that we can be effective and equipped to change the world. I pray, Lord, that this would be at that kind of church, that we would be on our knees begging you to be these kinds of people. God, we thank you so much, Lord, that you offer salvation to any person who would repent of their sin and believe on Jesus Christ. And if you have never done that tonight, the Bible says very clearly that all have sinned and fallen short, fallen short of the glory of God, including myself, including every person that sits in this room tonight. That sin has a wage of death. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. Because of sin, you will be separated forever and ever and ever from God. But the free gift of God in Christ is life. When you turn, from, when you repent of your sin and confess that sin to your holy maker and depend on the cross and the cross alone, for forgiveness, you will be saved. And I pray tonight that if you've never done that, that you make that decision in your heart in a quiet prayer before God right now. And if you've done that, please come and talk to me afterwards and I would love to speak with you more. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this night you've given us. Please bless this church as we go. God, equip us and make us effective in this world. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You folks are dismissed. God bless you.